This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume 1, by James Boswell. Section 24. 1760. In 1760 he wrote an address of the painters to George the Third, on his ascension to the throne of these kingdoms, which no monarch ever ascended with more sincere congratulations from his people. Two generations of foreign princes had prepared their minds to rejoice in having again a king who gloried in being, quote, born a Briton, unquote. He also wrote for Mr. Baretti the dedication of his Italian and English Dictionary, to the Marquis of Abreu, then envoy extraordinary from Spain at the court of Great Britain. Johnson was now neither very idle nor very busy with his Shakespeare, for I can find no other public composition by him except an introduction to the proceedings of the Committee for Clothing the French Prisoners, one of the many proofs that he was ever awake to the calls of humanity and an account which he gave in the Gentleman's Magazine of Mr. Titler's acute and able vindication of Mary, Queen of Scots. The generosity of Johnson's feelings shines forth in the following sentence. Quote, it has now been fashionable for near half a century to defame and vilify the house of Stuart and to exalt and magnify the reign of Elizabeth. The Stuarts have found few apologists, for the dead cannot pay for praise, and who will, without reward, oppose the tide of popularity. Yet there remains among us, not wholly extinguished, a zeal for truth, a desire of establishing right in opposition to fashion. Unquote. In this year I have not discovered a single private letter written by him to any of his friends. It should seem, however, that he had at this period a floating intention of writing a history of the recent and wonderful successes of the British arms in all quarters of the globe, for among his resolutions or memorandums, September 18th, quote, Send for books for hist of war, unquote. How much is it to be regretted that this intention was not fulfilled? His majestic expression would have carried down to the latest posterity the glorious achievements of his country, with the same fervent glow which they produced on the mind of the time. He would have been under no temptation to deviate in any degree from truth, which he held very sacred, or to take a license, which a learned divine told me he once seemed, in a conversation, jocularly to allow to historians. Quote, there are, said he, inexcusable lies, and consecrated lies. For instance, we are told that on the arrival of the news of the unfortunate Battle of Fontenoy, every heart beat and every eye was in tears. Now we know that no man eat his dinner the worse, but there should have been all this concern. And to say there was, smiling here, may be reckoned a consecrated lie. Unquote. This year Mr. Murphy, having thought himself ill-treated by the Reverend Dr. Franklin, who was one of the writers of The Critical Review, published an indignant vindication in A Poetical Epistle to Samuel Johnson, A.M., in which he compliments Johnson in a just and elegant manner, 
Quote, Transcendent genius, whose prolific vein ne'er knew the frigid poet's toil and pain, to whom Apollo opens all his store, and every muse presents her sacred lore. Say, powerful Johnson, whence thy verse is fraught, with so much grace and such energy of thought, whether thy juvenile instructs the age in chaster numbers and new points his rage, or fair Irene sees, alas, too late, her innocence exchanged for guilty state. Whatever you write, in every golden line, sublimity and elegance combine. Thy nervous phrase impresses every soul, while harmony gives rapture to the whole. End quote. Again, toward the conclusion, quote, Thou then, my friend, who seest the dangerous strife, in which some demon bids me plunge my life, to the Aeonian fount direct my feet, say where the nine thy lonely musings meet, where warbles to thy ear the sacred throng, thy moral sense, thy dignity of song. Tell, for you can, by what unerring art, you wake to finer feelings every heart. In each bright page some truth important give, and bid to future times thy rambler live. End quote. I take this opportunity to relate the manner in which an acquaintance first commenced between Dr. Johnson and Mr. Murphy. During the publication of the Gray's Inn Journal, a periodical paper which was successfully carried on by Mr. Murphy alone, when a very young man, he happened to be in the country with Mr. Foote, and having mentioned that he was obliged to go to London in order to get ready for the press in one of the numbers of that journal, Foote said to him, quote, you need not to go on that account. Here is a French magazine, in which you will find a very pretty oriental tale. Translate that, and send it to your printer. End quote. Mr. Murphy, having read the tale, was highly pleased with it, and followed Foote's advice. When he returned to town, this tale was pointed out to him in The Rambler, from whence it had been translated into the French magazine. Mr. Murphy then waited upon Johnson to explain this curious incident. His talents, literature, and gentlemanlike manners were soon perceived by Johnson, and a friendship was formed, which was never broken. Quote, to Bennet Langton, Esquire, at Langton, near Spilsby, Lincolnshire. Dear Sir, you that travel about the world have more materials for letters than I who stay at home, and should, therefore, write with frequency equal to your opportunities. I should be glad to have all England surveyed by you, if you would impart your observations and narratives as agreeable as your last. Knowledge is always to be wished to those who can communicate it well. While you have been riding and running, and seeing the tombs of the learned, and the camps of the valiant, I have only stayed at home, and intended to do great things which I have not done. Beau went away to Cheshire, and has not yet found his way back. Chambers passed the vacation at Oxford. I am very sincerely solicitous for the preservation or curing of Mr. Langton's sight, and am glad that the surgeon at Coventry gives him so much hope. Mr. Sharp is of opinion that the tedious maturation of the cataract is a vulgar error, and that it may be removed as soon as it is formed. This notion deserves to be considered. I doubt whether it be universally true, but if it be true in some cases, and those cases can be distinguished, it may save a long and uncomfortable delay." Of dear Mrs. Langton you give me no account, which is less friendly, 
as you know how highly I think of her, and how much I interest myself in her health. I suppose you told her of my opinion, and likewise it was not followed. However, I still believe it to be right. Let me hear from you again, wherever you are, or whatever you are doing. Whether you wander or sit still, plant trees or make rustics, play with your sisters or muse alone, and in return I will tell you the successes of Sheridan, who at this instant is playing Cato, and has already played Richard twice. He had more company the second than the first night, and will make, I believe, a good figure in the whole, though his faults seem to be very many, some of natural deficience, and some of laborious affectation. He has, I think, no power of assuming either that dignity or elegance which some men, who have little of either in common life, can exhibit on the stage. His voice when strained is unpleasing, and when low is not always heard. He seems to think too much on the audience, and turns his face too often to the galleries. However, I wish him well, and among other reasons, because I like his wife. Make haste to write to, dear sir. Your most affectionate servant, Sam Johnson. October 18th, 1760. In 1761, Johnson appears to have done little. He was still, no doubt, proceeding in his edition of Shakespeare, but what advances he made in it cannot be ascertained. He certainly was at this time not active, for in his scrupulous examination of himself on Easter Eve he laments, in his too rigorous mode of censuring his own conduct, that his life, since the communion of the preceding Easter, had been, quote, dissipated and useless, unquote. He, however, contributed this year the preface to Rolt's Dictionary of Trade and Commerce, in which he displays such a clear and comprehensive knowledge of the subject as might lead the reader to think that its author had devoted all his life to it. I asked him whether he knew much of Rolt and of his work. Quote, Sir, said he, I never saw the man, and never read the book. The booksellers wanted a preface to a dictionary of trade and commerce. I knew very well what such a dictionary should be, and I wrote a preface accordingly. End quote. Rolt, who wrote a great deal for the booksellers, was, as Johnson told me, a singular character. Though not in the least acquainted with him, he used to say, quote, I am just come from Sam Johnson. End quote. This was a sufficient specimen of his vanity and impudence, but he gave a more eminent proof of it in our sister kingdom, as Dr. Johnson informed me. When Akenside's Pleasures of the Imagination first came out, he did not put his name to the poem. Rolt went over to Dublin, published an edition of it, and put his own name to it. Upon the fame of this he lived for several months, being entertained at the best tables as, quote, the ingenious Mr. Rolt, end quote. His conversation indeed did not discover much of the fire of a poet, but it was recollected that both Addison and Thompson were equally dull till excited by wine. Akinside, having been informed of this imposition, vindicated his right by publishing the poem with its real author's name. Several instances of such literary fraud have been detected. The Reverend Dr. Campbell, of St. Andrews, wrote 
an inquiry into the original of moral virtue, the manuscript of which he sent to Mr. Innes, a clergyman in England, who was his countryman and acquaintance. Innes published it with his own name to it, and before the imposition was discovered, obtained a considerable promotion as reward of his merit. Note. I have had inquiry made in Ireland as to this story, but do not find it recollected there. I give it on the authority of Dr. Johnson, to which may be added that of the Biographical Dictionary and Biographia Dramatica, in both of which it has stowed for many years. Mr. Malone observes that the truth probably is not that an edition was published with Rolt's name in the title-page, but that the poem, being then anonymous, Rolt acquiesced in its being attributed to him in conversation. End of note. The celebrated Dr. Hugh Blair, and his cousin Mr. George Bannatine, when students in divinity, wrote a poem entitled The Resurrection, copies of which were handed about in manuscript. They were, at length, very much surprised to see a pompous edition of it in folio, dedicated to the Princess Dowager of Wales, by a Dr. Douglas, as his own. Some years ago, a little novel, entitled The Man of Feeling, was assumed by Mr. Eccles, a young Irish clergyman, who was afterwards drowned near Bath. He had been at the pains to transcribe the whole book, with blottings, interlineations, and corrections, that it might be shown to several people as an original. It was, in truth, the production of Mr. Henry Mackenzie, an attorney in the Exchequer at Edinburgh, who is the author of several other ingenious pieces. But the belief with regard to Mr. Eccles became so general that it was thought necessary for Messrs. Strahan and Cadell to publish an advertisement in the newspapers, contradicting the report, and mentioning that they purchased the copyright of Mr. Mackenzie. I can conceive this kind of fraud to be very easily practiced with successful effrontery. The filiation of a literary performance is difficult of proof. Seldom is there any witness present at its birth. A man, either in confidence or by improper means, obtains possession of a copy of it in manuscript, and boldly publishes it as his own. The true author, in many cases, may not be able to make his title clear. Johnson, indeed, from the peculiar features of his literary offspring, might bid defiance to any attempt to appropriate them to others. Quote, but Shakespeare's magic could not copied be. Within that circle none durst walk but he. End quote. He this year lent his friendly assistance to correct and improve a pamphlet written by Mr. Gwynne, the architect, entitled Thoughts on the Coronation of George the Third. Johnson had now for some years admitted Mr. Baretti to his intimacy, nor did their friendship cease upon their being separated by Mr. Baretti's revisiting his native country, as appears from Johnson's letters to him. Quote, to Mr. Joseph Baretti, at Milan. You reproach me very often with parsimony of writing, but you may discover by the extent of my paper 
that I design to recompense rarity by length. A short letter to a distant friend is, in my opinion, an insult like that of a slight bow or cursory salutation, a proof of unwillingness to do much, even where there is a necessity of doing something. Yet it must be remembered that he who continues the same course of life in the same place will have little to tell. One week and one year are very much like one another. The silent changes made by time are not always perceived, and if they are not perceived, cannot be recounted. I have risen and lain down, talked and mused, while you have roved over a considerable part of Europe. Yet I have not envied my Baretti any of his pleasures, though perhaps I have envied others his company, and I am glad to have other nations made acquainted with the character of the English by a traveller who has so nicely inspected our manners, and so successfully studied our literature. I received your kind letter from Falmouth, in which you gave me notice of your departure for Lisbon, and another from Lisbon, in which you told me that you were to leave Portugal in a few days. To either of these, how could any answer be returned? I have had a third from Turin, complaining that I have not answered the former. Your English style still continues in its purity and vigour. With vigour your genius will supply it, but its purity must be continued by close attention. To use two languages familiarly, and without contaminating one by the other, is very difficult. And to use more than two is hardly to be hoped. The praises which some have received for their multiplicity of languages may be sufficient to excite industry, but can hardly generate confidence. I know not whether I can heartily rejoice at the kind reception which you have found, or at the popularity to which you are exalted. I am willing that your merit should be distinguished, but cannot wish that your affections may be gained. I would have you happy wherever you are, yet I would have you wish to return to England. If ever you visit us again, you will find the kindness of your friends undiminished. To tell you how many inquiries are made after you would be tedious, or if not tedious would be vain, because you may be told in a very few words that all who knew you wish you well, and that all you embraced at your departure will caress you at your return. Therefore do not let Italian academicians nor Italian ladies drive us from your thoughts. You may find among us what you will leave behind, soft smiles and easy sonnets. Yet I shall not wonder if all our invitations should be rejected, for there is a pleasure in being considerable at home, which is not easily resisted. By conducting Mr. Southwell to Venice, you fulfilled, I know, the original contract. Yet I would wish you not wholly to lose him from your notice, but to recommend him to such acquaintance as may best secure him from suffering by his own follies, and to take such general care of both his safety and his interest as may come within your power. His relations will thank you for any such gratuitous attention. At least they will not blame you for any evil that may happen, whether they thank you or not for any good. 
you know that we have a new king and a new parliament of the new parliament fitzherbert is a member we were so weary of our old king that we are very much pleased with his successor of whom we are so much inclined to hope great things that most of us begin already to believe them the young man is hitherto blameless but it would be unreasonable to expect much from the immaturity of juvenile years and the ignorance of princely education he has been long in the hands of the scots and has already favoured them more than the english will contentedly endure but perhaps he scarcely knows whom he has distinguished or whom he has disgusted the artists have instituted a yearly exhibition of pictures and statues in imitation as i am told of foreign academies this year was the second exhibition they pleased themselves much with the multitude of spectators and imagine that the english school will rise in reputation reynolds is without a rival and continues to add thousands to thousands which he deserves among other excellencies by retaining his kindness for Baretti. This exhibition has filled the heads of the artists and lovers of art. Surely life, if it be not long, is tedious, since we are forced to call in the assistance of so many trifles to rid us of our time, of that time which never can return. I know my Baretti will not be satisfied with a letter in which I give him no account of myself. Yet what account shall I give him? I have not, since the day of our separation, suffered or done anything considerable. The only change in my way of life is that I have frequented the theatre more than in former seasons. But I have gone thither only to escape from myself, we have had many new farces, and the comedy called The Jealous Wife, which, though not written with much genius, was yet so well adapted to the stage, and so well exhibited by the actors, that it was crowded for near twenty nights. I am digressing from myself to the playhouse, but a barren plan must be filled with episodes. Of myself I have nothing to say but that I have hitherto lived without the concurrence of my own judgment, yet I continue to flatter myself that when you return you will find me mended. I do not wonder that where the monastic life is permitted, every order finds votaries, and every monastery inhabitants. Men will submit to any rule by which they may be exempted from the tyranny of caprice and of chance. They are glad to supply by external authority their own want of constancy and resolution, and court the government of others, when long experience has convinced them of their own inability to govern themselves. If I were to visit Italy, my curiosity would be more attracted by convents than by palaces, though I am afraid that I should find expectation in both places equally disappointed and life in both places, supported with impatience and quitted with reluctance. That it must so soon be quitted is a powerful remedy against impatience. But what shall free us from reluctance? Those who have endeavoured to teach us to die well have taught few to die willingly, 
yet I cannot but hope that a good life might end at last in a contented death. You see to what a train of thought I am drawn by the mention of myself. Let me now turn my attention upon you. I hope that you take care to keep an exact journal, and to register all occurrences and observations. For your friends here expect such a book of travels as has not been often seen. You have given us good specimens in your letters from Lisbon. I wish you had stayed longer in Spain, for no country is less known to the rest of Europe, but the quickness of your discernment must make amends for the celerity of your motions. He that knows which way to direct his view sees much in a little time. Write to me very often, and I will not neglect to write to you, and I may, perhaps, in time, get something to write. At least you will know by my letters, whatever else they may have or want, that I continue to be your most affectionate friend, Sam Johnson. London, June 10th, 1761. End quote. End of section 24. You have been listening to The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume 1, by James Boswell.